This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. You guys can be seated. So a couple of weeks ago, we started a new series on David uh, after God's own heart. And so we are kind of following the contours of, of David's life. Last week, we looked at David's anointing. And today we're looking at the time when, when David really kind of first becomes a, a public Figure. I mean, up until this point, really, nobody knew about David except Samuel and his own family. But that changes in 1 Samuel 17. So open your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're talking about run to the battle. Later on in our service, we're going to take part in one of the ordinances of our faith, the Lord's Supper. And so hopefully you got uh, your Lord's Supper kit when you came in this morning. If, if, uh, If you're taking part in the Lord's Supper later on and you did not get this, just slip your Slip your hand up, and uh, if there's any, anyone, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of make sure, make sure you're taken care of. We'll, 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 we look forward to taking part um, in the Lord's Supper together at the end of our, our service. First Samuel chapter 17 is where we're going to be. And so we are going to be reading most of this chapter kind of as we walk through it. We're just going to kind of walk through this morning verse by verse. So just keep your Bibles open as always and just kind of follow along in the, in the text as we walk through it today. Let's pray together as we prepare to dig into God's word. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word and Lord, we pray that now you would prepare our minds and our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold the the wonders, the treasures that are here in your word, Lord, and that, that, that by your spirit that they would work their way in us and then through us, out through our living. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would fire our hearts with the truth of your word and plant it deep within us. And, Lord, make it come out in the course of our living as we go forth from this place into a world that so needs our Savior. And so, Lord, these are, these are incredibly important, crucial minutes that follow uh, and so, Lord, may, may we say, here, here we are. We, we are listening to your word. Speak to us now by the power of your spirit. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, it was great hearing about the women's, uh, the women's ministry event. And uh, my wife and two daughters greatly enjoyed it uh, on Friday night. I was thinking about a woman that had gr- greatly impacted me. And, and, uh, and that's beginning with my mom. And one of the things that my mom did, one of the best things was that she read to me so faithfully when I was a little boy. And that did a couple of things. It, it, it provided really precious one-on-one times between me and my mom. 
and it did something else. It, it gave me a love for reading that has just stayed with me to this day. So my mom would read mainly stories, you know, sometimes funny stories, uh, dramatic stories, exciting stories, stories that would draw me in. And when you read the Gospels, you see that, that Jesus made frequent use of stories to draw people in and to open people's hearts to the truth. And the Old Testament is filled with incredible stories. And this morning, we're looking at one of the most famous of those stories. Now, there's a danger whenever we come to a really famous Bible story, and the danger is that we can think that we already know it. We think we already understand it. But what we really need to understand is that we have an infinite God. And if God is the ultimate author of Scripture, and he is, God is infinite. And what that means is that we can, we can never exhaust the knowledge. We, can, we, can, we are always going to be, as we, as we dig into Scripture, because God is infinite, and he's, he's the ultimate author, what that means is that we're gonna to continue to pull new treasures out throughout the course of our, of our lives as we, as we dig into scripture. You, you may have heard me say before, if you rake, all you get is leaves. But if you dig, you get diamonds. And we wanna dig into the word of God and we are always gonna bring new treasures out, even if it's a story that we think we already know, new treasures are coming. And so we're gonna do that this morning as we look at 1 Samuel 17, and one of the most familiar of the Bible stories, the, the, the story of, of, of David and Goliath, but ultimately this is not about David or Goliath. <laughs> what we're gonna see is ultimately this is about Jesus. So what do we see here? If you wanna follow along and take notes, you have the outline on the back of your, of, your, of your bulletin that you received when you came in today. First thing that we see in verses one through 11 is the situation. So let's look at the situation here. Check out verses two and three. Just follow along in your copy of God's word. So Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. <clears throat> then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. So this is a photo of the valley of Elah. I've been there in Israel, some of you have. And you notice here, there's a hill on both sides and then this kind of a valley in between, which is actually a wadi. It's a dry riverbed. And it's in an area where the Philistines should not have been. Because years before, God had told his people to, to drive out the inhabitants of this particular part of the land. And that had substantially been done under Joshua, but now the Philistines have come 
back. You know, sometimes in our own lives, we, we give ground back to the enemy. You know, God will give us substantial victory over an area of sin in our lives, but then we start making little compromises here and there, and pretty soon the enemy has kind of slithered back. We don't want to do that. We, want to, we don't want to give ground back to the enemy. And when we talk about the enemy slithering back, think about the image of a snake, of a serpent. You know, we're going to see in a moment in verse 5 that Goliath is wearing scale armor. He, it, it, armor that had, had scales on it. He looked like a snake. He looked like a big snake. And in a way, he's, he's representing a, a snake. What you've got to remember is that the one who represents you is the one who, as Genesis 3.15 says, he crushes the head of the snake. And that's Jesus. Let's, um, let's continue following along here, beginning in, in, in verse 4. Goliath here is described in, in great detail. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. So when God initially sent the Hebrew spies into Canaan, um, you remember that uh, all but Joshua and Caleb were completely freaked out. And so 10 of them came back and they said, there's no way that we'll ever be able to take this land. And one of the reasons that they gave were that the people were huge, the, the, the Anakim, were there. They were this group of just exceptionally large people. Well, the Philistines were descendants of the Anakim. And Goliath was massive even by Anakim standards, even by Philistine standards. Uh, this guy was, was giant. And, and, and the Philistines were also very technologically advanced in their use of weaponry and armor. Scholars believe they were the first people group to use bronze and iron as weaponry, as, as armor. Well, in addition to being big, Goliath talked big. He was a trash talker. Look at verses 8 and following. It says, he stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come out to line up in battle formation, he asked them. Am I not a Philistine or not you servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so that we can fight each other. Now, what Goliath is proposing was called representative warfare. The Philistines were known for this. So the deal was, hey, we can end the stalemate by choosing one from each side to come out and to represent his army. 
And so Goliath is saying, I will represent the Philistines. Choose whoever you want to represent Israel to come out and to, and to face me. Well, he wasn't getting any takers on that. Why? Because they were terrified. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. What was the problem here? It was a problem of comparison. You see, Saul was, Saul was comparing himself to the giant instead of comparing the giant to God. I want to say that again. Saul and the men of Israel were comparing themselves to the giant rather than comparing the giant to Almighty God. We so often do the same in our lives. We, we look at situations in our lives and we, we feel completely overwhelmed because we're not factoring in God to our thinking. We're just going by what we see with our eyes. But the problem with that is that 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. I mean, just a couple of examples of this. You know, one area that can overwhelm us and make us fear, uh, be fearful you know, is, is our finances. And we think, you know, especially in times like this, you know, how can, I, how can I possibly give anything? I've got to, you know, hoard everything. I've got to keep it all. What's the problem with that kind of thinking? Where is God? Where is God in that? Philippians 4.19 gives us this promise. Paul says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That means we can trust the Lord and step out in faith and, and give. Think about witnessing. Think about sharing your faith. You know, we, we think, uh, you know, this, this friend is so hardcore, they're so secular, you know, they're, they're never, they're never going to be in, in Christ, they'll never repent and believe and so we basically say no for that person. We're not factoring in what the Holy Spirit could do in their lives if we would share the gospel with them. Or we say, uh, you know, I, I can't share because I don't know that I'll have exactly the right words. Where is God in that? What we need to understand is that scripture tells us that if we will open our mouths and begin to share the gospel, the spirit will give us words. And, and listen, there are all kinds of giants that can make us fear, feel overwhelmed. It could be fear, worry, discouragement, a relationship problem, Temptation, addiction. You look at these things and, and, and you feel completely overwhelmed and you say, yeah, I, because I, I can't do this on my own. And you're right. You can't do it on your own. And it is overwhelming. All of these things are overwhelming if you don't put God into the equation. 
if you're comparing whatever it, 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 you're, you know, whatever it is, and, and you're, not, you're not putting in God. We need to understand that what's over our heads is under his feet. The second thing that we see here in chapter 17 is the shepherd. It's at this point that we are introduced, uh, that the world is introduced really to David. Let's pick it up here in verse 12. Now, David was the son of, of an Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war and their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab the next, and Shammah the third, and David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day Jesse had told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take these 10 portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Now, once again, as we saw last week in chapter 16, David is an afterthought to his father, Jesse. You know, and Jesse basically has just said, hey, you know, you stay back, take care of the sheep. You know, you can occasionally, uh, you know, run groceries, make grocery deliveries to your older brothers who are at the front line because they're doing the fighting. Look at verse 19 again. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Well, that was the problem. Nobody was fighting with the Philistines at this point. For 40 days, day after day, Goliath comes out and challenges and taunts. And nobody comes out. Everybody wants to stay behind the lines in safety and in comfort. Listen, as, as Western Christians, right, as American believers, one of the giants that we have to deal with is our addiction to comfort. To, to, to stay back behind the line and not get out there and engage because we're so used to being comfortable. We don't want to get out of our, of our comfort zone. Recently, one of our vice presidents at IMB woke up in the middle of the night and God had given him a dream. So there are about 3,000 unreached, unengaged people groups on our planet right now. You know, we talk about unreached people groups. Those are people groups that have very, very few believers. We desperately need more missionaries working within those groups. But an unreached, unengaged people group, that's a people group where there is no one working among them. No one. And there are about 3,000 such 
people groups, unreached and unengaged. And that figure of 3,000 has remained static, basically, for a number of years. And God just woke one of our vice presidents up in the middle of the night and just said, you you can't continue to tolerate what is intolerable. And he gave him a vision called 300 for 3,000. 300 who will each take 10 unreached, unengaged people groups, find them, go and live among them, begin initial work among them for a couple of years, and then come back and push and plan and advocate so that more will go to those unreached, unengaged people groups, and that horrible number of 3,000 is reduced to, to zero. They're unreached and unengaged because they live in places that are hard to get to and hard to live in. But that's where the Lord has called us to go. That's part of what you're supporting through our church around the world. But listen, there is not a single IMB missionary that is commissioned unless they have first proven themselves to be a missionary at home. Right where they are. As we enter out of the doors of this church building, we are entering into a mission field. Look around, we live in a sea of lost people in a world that is hurting and incredibly broken. Every time you leave here, you're entering the mission field. The question is, will we remain behind the lines and and safety behind the lines, or will we get out there and engage people? We've talked about who's your one. Who's your one? Who's a a lost person in your life? A a family member, a, a friend? someone who's within your sphere of influence, your friend group, someone at school, does, does a one immediately come to your mind that you are praying specifically for, praying specifically for their salvation? That one or more than what needs to be there, certainly. But listen, when are you gonna step out in faith and pick up the phone and, and, and call and say, let's get together for coffee for lunch and you you share the good news of the gospel you share the good the good news of what Jesus has done invite them invite them to come here and and and, and learn and grow and, and 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 experience more of what the gospel is all about don't stay behind the lines don't just keep conversations about, you know, weather and sports and family. Those are good things to talk about, but listen, God's called us to more. If people like us don't share, who's going to share? If people like us don't come out from the safety of our comfort zone, 
and begin to talk to people about Jesus, who's gonna do that? No, we're called to do that. Let's pick it back up in, in verse 22 here. So David got up early in the morning, left the flock with someone to keep it, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had charged him. He arrived at the perimeter of the camp as the army was marching out to its battle formation, shouting their battle cry. Israel and the Philistines lined up in battle formation, facing each other. David left his supplies in the, in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. He was eager. He was running to the battle. Verse 23, while he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated from him terrified. Previously, an Israelite man had declared, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will make the man who kills him very rich and will give him his daughter the king will also make the family of that, man, of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. But apparently the promise, the reward of being royal and rich hasn't appealed to any of these guys because, you know, they're thinking, what good is that if I'm not going to be alive to enjoy it? Comparing themselves to the giant rather than comparing the giant to God. But there was one who was different. He compared the giant to God. Suddenly the giant didn't look so big anymore. Verse 26. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God. Finally, somebody compares the giant to God. D David is like, you know, this, this uncircumcised Philistine, in other words, this guy's a pagan. He worships false gods. He worships gods who don't even exist. They can't help him. And we serve the living God, the Lord Almighty. Verse 28. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with them. Why did you come down here, he asked. Who did you lead those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to just see the battle. Eliab is cynical, negative, naysayer. Listen, anytime that you step out in faith for the Lord, the enemy is going to come against that. And one of the things the enemy use, uses is you know, negativity, naysayers, cynicism, skepticism. Sometimes that can come from the last people that it should come from. In the case of David, it's coming from his own family. Who are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to the Lord? You're going to listen to the cynics 
the naysayers. The third thing that we see here in the story is the slaying. The slaying. Let's pick it up in in verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So he had David brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go and fight this Philistine. You're just a youth and he's been a warrior since he was young. You know, Saul is like, David, you know, let me make you aware of some obvious but apparently overlooked facts. You are basically a kid and this guy is a trained killer. But David has some facts of his own. Verse 34. David answered Saul, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. You know, David might have been just a shepherd boy, but... There's some hairy situations that have been happening out there in those fields through the years. And there's some beasts that he's encountered that were even more frightening than Goliath. Lions, bears, and what David has learned through the years is that God is faithful. God is faithful. God can be trusted. Look at verse 37 again. David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Verse 38. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and and, and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm I'm not used to them. You see, Saul was trying to get David to fight Goliath in Goliath's way. But we don't fight the enemy that way. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We fight God's battles God's way. Look at verse verse 40. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in a shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached 
the Philistine. Uh, I don't know if you remember the scene from the first Indiana Jones movie, but, but uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah, there's a scene where, uh, where Indiana Jones is, is facing this guy, and the guy comes out, and he's got, he's got knives, and he's kind of like juggling the knives and doing all the fancy stuff with the knives, and Indiana Jones just pulls out his pistol and just shoots him. That's what this is going to be like here. Look at verses 41 and following. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beast. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. See, David understands what this is all about. This is all about God. This is all about God's glory, God's fame, God's reputation. Verse 46. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. The key phrase here is that, that all the world will know. You see, David has a zeal for the glory of God. David says, all the world will know. Outsiders are going to know who is God. Insiders, the assembly, that's Israel, they are going to know who is God. David is passionate for the glory of God, for the fame, the reputation, the honor of God throughout the world and among his people. Now you understand why David's called a man after God's own heart. He is passionate for the glory of God. That's what this is about. Verse 48, when the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. Now, that's a story. Where 
are we in this story? We've looked at a number of points of application, but I want us to look at something that, that most people do not see here, and that is that Jesus is in the middle of this story. Most people traditionally and culturally, when they, when they think about the story of David and Goliath, they just think of the story as kind of like a classic underdog story. You know, hey, believe it, just believe in yourself and you can be a David. I mean, if we've seen anything this morning, hasn't it been the fact that it had nothing to do with David believing in David? It was all about David believing in God, right? It was David comparing this giant to almighty God. That was the difference. But there's something else here that we need to see and most people miss it. And that is that Christ is here in the middle of the story. David is the ancestor and the forerunner of Jesus. We, we saw that, that, that David came from where? Bethlehem, the city of David. And on the night of his birth, what are the shepherds going to, uh, what are the angels going to announce to the shepherds out in the field? Luke 2, 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. David's kingship is, it points to the ultimate king, his ultimate son, the ultimate son of David, and his kingship. What does the angel Gabriel say to Mary when he tells her that she's going to bear the Lord Jesus? Luke, two, Luke 1, verses 31 and 32. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Jesus is right in the middle of David's story, and Jesus is right in the middle of this story in 1 Samuel 17. In verses 4 and again in verse 23, Goliath is referred to as a champion. Now, the meaning of that is very different from the way that we use the term champion. We use champion to describe kind of the, you know, the ultimate winner in a, in a season, a, a game, right, champion. But the, the meaning of the term here, the Hebrew word of champion in verses 4 and 23, literally it means a man of the between. One who is in, in between. You remember in representative warfare, what's happening? Someone comes out and they, they, they come in the middle between the two armies. They come between the two armies and they represent their side. And so Goliath is coming out in between the two forces and he's representing the Philistines. David comes out 
in between the two armies, and he's representing Israel. Champion, man of the between. Now see, when we think of this story, we like to, we like to think of ourselves as being like David, but really, we're more like Israel. <laughs> we need a champion. We need someone to come out in the middle. We need someone to come between us and God's righteous wrath that is poured out against sin. We need someone to come out and represent us and be a champion on our behalf, one who will stand between sin and death and represent us. One of our, one of our missionaries tells a story on December 26, 2004, one of his friends in an Asian country along the Indian Ocean was asleep on the beach with about a dozen other people and they were awakened that morning by an earthquake, seven point earthquake on the Richter scale. And it woke them up and and after a few minutes, they saw the strangest thing they had ever seen. The water on the shoreline was receding. It receded out about a half mile. So there's like a half mile of ocean floor that now had no water on it. They'd never seen anything like this. And so they walked out into where the ocean had been. Well my friend's friend could not stay. He had to go check on his parents, and so he left. He got on his motorcycle, and he went to check on his, his parents, and his friends were there, and they're standing out there where the ocean had previously been, and then they looked up, and there was a 70-foot-high wall of water, the tsunami that was barreling toward them. Every single one of them, except for my friend's friend who had, who had left already, perished in the tsunami. Imagine standing there and seeing a 70-foot-high wall of water just barreling towards you at 60 miles an hour. There's nothing you can do. You can't outrun it. There's nowhere you can turn. There's nowhere to go. There's no escape. But then imagine this. Imagine this, this wall of water coming towards you and you've resigned yourself to death. But just before the wave makes impact with you, imagine that the ground just opens up between you and the wave and the ground opens up and it just swallows. It just swallows that wall of water before it can impact you. That's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He has swallowed death forever for the believer. Jesus is our champion. 
Jesus was the man who came between us and sin and death and all of its consequences. Jesus took the impact of the tsunami of our sin. He took the impact of, of sin and death, even though he had no sin. He took it for us. He let it impact him. And on the cross, he swallowed death on our behalf and rose from the dead that we might have eternal life. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Earlier in the service, we sung that great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. One of the lines that we sung in that song was this. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Jesus put himself between us and the consequences of sin and death. He took it on himself. He interposed himself. He's the man who comes in between. He's our champion. And we need a champion. And it's Christ. He has swallowed death in our place. And listen, this is what we picture when we take the Lord's Supper. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Jesus shed his precious blood that we could be protected from the consequences of our sin. He took our sins on himself. He took death on himself and rose again as our victor. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you that you gave your son to represent us, to be our champion. We thank you that he who had no sin became sin for us in our place, shed his blood for us on the cross, died for us, and rose again that we might have eternal life. Lord, we thank you for the way that the Lord's Supper just, just brings the glory of the gospel and just placards it right before our eyes. It brings us back in a very vivid, visual way to the good news of what Jesus has done for us. As we prepare to take part in this supper that our Lord ordained, let's spend a few moments in, in, in prayer before him. The Bible tells us, let us examine ourselves before we take the bread and, and drink the cup. None of us deserves to be able to come to this table. So it's not a matter of making ourselves deserving. In fact, the only way we can come to this table is that we understand that we're not deserving and that we desperately need a Savior, and it's Jesus. But are there things in your life as a Christian, you know, that you're 
that you're not completely giving to the Lord. Sin that you're not dealing with, sin that hasn't been confessed. Relationships, perhaps, that, where you need to go to someone. This is a time to examine our hearts as we prepare to, to take part. Spend a few moments before the Lord. Lord, we acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we thank you that a Savior has been provided. Thank you for his broken body and his shed blood. Lord, help us to, to rest completely in Christ alone for our rescue, our deliverance, our salvation. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 